Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 48 through 59. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you are actually new, I am as well, contrary to some. Um, I am new. Uh, my second Sunday officially here at uh, Wellspring. I'm Pastor Joe, so you can take comfort that we're new together. Um, I just want to express a word of gratitude to those who have um, prayed for us, encouraged us. We have, beyond expectation, have been uh, warmly greeted and supported in our transition, especially those who have generously given to allow us to purchase more after we have purged so much. Uh, but that's fine. Uh, we're very grateful. And, and particularly, I don't know if it's a person in this worship service or not, but I came in this morning and someone had invaded my office and yet gave me a very encouraging word on my board from Psalm 64 to be still, or 46, to be still and to know that the Lord is God. And uh, so that was uh, very encouraging at a, a very appropriate time. Um, my wife and I have only been here for 10 days. And <clears throat> I've been asked several times what we miss most about Philly. And I think earlier this week I said it was just being surrounded by people who are just as insanely fanatical about Philadelphia sports as I am. And now I find myself in enemy territory, which is fine. It'll stretch me and sanctify me. Now, if you ask me today what I miss most about Philadelphia, it is the East Coast Costco. My wife and I, ignorantly, naively, and hopefully we will learn from our mistake, we went to Costco late morning yesterday on a Saturday and it was a battle. I think we needed officers and traffic monitors, and, and it was certainly, uh, as I, I believe it now when scripture says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Um, I stood there as my wife went looking for I don't know what, but uh, as I stood there and I saw a lady preparing to give out free samples, which I admit, sometimes I time so that I can offset my lunch, um, and this lady had two samples she was just about to put on that little platter. And I saw a lady waiting, 
And one, two, I can do the math. And she grabbed both. And I was really just thrown off my game, just really upset. Um, <clears throat> just very upset. But uh, hopefully Costco is, if you know of a better hour to go, please let me know. Um, the parking is just ridiculous here. But um, as, I, as we walked out, I thought, Northern California is like suburbs on steroids. Um, we, we are the minor leagues out in Philadelphia, but this is the big leagues here. Um, anyway, enough about me. So, The Bible has one purpose, and its purpose is what I'd like for us to consider and to explore today. It's really answering one simple question. Who is Jesus? And you have your own answers. I don't know what they are. In fact, your answer today from your lips may not even resonate with the answer that is spoken from your deeds, from the way you live your life. You may be someone who resonates with my response, which I believe is the biblical response, which I'd like to present to you to be the only true response, which is that Jesus is, as John would tell us in chapter 20, verse 31, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life, eternal life, in his name. If you believe him to be someone who's simply religious and offers great wisdom, which a lot of people will, and maybe many of you do, then the Bible's of no good, no good to you. Because the Bible would be a book of lies. Because the Bible contends and it suggests that Jesus is the very only Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and as we will mention again later in today's talk, the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life. Jesus is that one. But again, maybe you're someone who believes that, but you find yourself in a rut of sorts, in some sort of stage or trend. Um, you've been swayed in your faith, and your life has taken a different turn. And you've forgotten. So hopefully today's message can be a reminder. You know, it's so easy to do that. Today we're going to talk about provisions. We're going to talk about things that we see and we touch, we smell, we taste. We're going to talk about how these things are so powerful and they were given to us as gifts, as answers to provisions of the necessities of life. They are from God. They are good in and of, itself, uh, in and of themselves. Kind of like money. There's a common misinterpretation, misunderstanding regarding money in Christianity. And many will say that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Actually, that's not in Scripture. The love of money is the root of many evils. So similarly, we have these things that God has given us, all these blessings. And as I look around, it's a fairly affluent region in the, this country. We have so much that we enjoy, and these are gifts from God. And yet so often, because of the sinfulness of our hearts, we can be swayed from their purpose 
which is to point us again, redirect us, to fortify our faith in the Lord. And rather, we isolate our vision and our motivation and our hopes on the things that God gives us, and we kind of forget, again, where it came from and for what purpose. Kind of like the way I was when I was a child. Got a good Christmas gift, and I would say, thank you, Dad. I love you. And then when they take that gift away, I hate you. Why would I hate him? Then all the value, all the power rests in that gift. It's really about the gift and not about the giver. It becomes about these provisions, these common grace means that God gives us, and we forget about God. So hopefully this can be a reminder uh, to you and to me, or maybe it can introduce to you the one who sets himself apart from everything, everybody else. Jesus, again, the only way to salvation, even if you think in terms of duration, sets himself apart. Eternal, temporary. In fact, the Gospel of John presents itself very differently from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It presents itself in a slightly different organized fashion where it has seven declarations that Jesus made. If you wanted to know, Jesus, what do you think about yourself? Even, it's a silly question, but if you looked at the other Gospels, you said, well, those are stories about you, but I want to know what you would say about yourself. Not You can ask my wife, who is Pastor Joe? Maybe she'll say some similar things as I would about myself. But you go right to the source, and you go, Jesus, who do you say that you are? And he gives seven declarations, and he calls them the I am declarations. And we find the first in our passage today here in John chapter 6, the bread of life. And then he follows that up with, I am the light of the world. And then later he says, he describes himself as, I am the door. And that's coupled with, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then he talks about how he is, and this is maybe one of the most famous passages in John and even in all of Scripture. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. So he sets himself apart, exclusive to God, only through me. And finally, or he also mentions, I am the resurrection of life. You may be familiar with that story where Lazarus is dead and Jesus arrives intentionally late. And Martha says, Jesus, I know that the resurrection will come. So I have hope that one day I will be reunited with my brother. But Jesus throws everything out the window and he says to her, I am the resurrection. Now think about that for a moment. Martha is saying, with you comes something. And that's what I'm focusing on. But Jesus says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I get it. The kind of like piece of the puzzle. You kind of make it work somehow, and it looks all right. It looks acceptable. And that's what Martha did. But what Jesus tells her, he, he says, no, it's not that resurrection comes with me. I am the resurrection. I am life. Not I give life or I offer life. I am life, new life. And finally, he says, I am the true vine. And he calls for you and I to abide with him. And as believers, we are united with Jesus, inseparable, that nothing can snatch us from the Father's hands, eternally bound to the Father. However, the Bible 
is bold enough to describe the faith of people that we have elevated and celebrated throughout the centuries, and it's bold enough to reveal to us and describe how they too, like you and me, wander or occasionally may have a misunderstanding regarding who Jesus is, or we deviate from that truth. Kind of like if you look at John 20, and you may be familiar with that story. John 20, Mary Magdalene, she's the first who goes to the tomb, and she sees it's empty. She goes back to the disciples. She says that it's empty, and Peter and John, they run to the tomb. Why do they run to the tomb? They run to the tomb because they did not believe this woman's testimony, and it would have been ridiculous to think that that tomb would be empty. But why would it be ridiculous if Jesus already told them, for three years, I'm going to die and rise again? Because they didn't understand. They walk away disappointed. And then there's Mary who meets with a man who we know to be Jesus. And the last time she's seen this man was three days ago. And suddenly he looks so different that she thinks he's some strange gardener. That is the power of resurrection. That even Jesus looked different. And she didn't understand what was going on. And then we have another story where soon after where Jesus appears to the disciples. Now immediately after that is a story about doubting Thomas. But it's funny how in history we give Thomas a bad rap. But the other disciples weren't any different actually. Because if you read the passage just before the Thomas passage, the disciples got to see and touch, and then they believed. They were no different from Thomas. And then Thomas comes around, and because Thomas wasn't there the first Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, he had to wait a week before he got to see and know and believe and be encouraged and comforted that Jesus is alive. It's so easy to misunderstand. And the Bible does a great job of being bold about the fact that we constantly are in need of gospel reminders of who Jesus is because we're just going to sway, wander from that. God's not a very good salesperson. If I were to sell you Christianity, I would say, this is what's going to happen. God's going to come into your life, and everything's going to be great. You and I know that's not true, and God would be a liar, because we're going to be faced with challenges and obstacles. We're going to fall. We're going to sin. We're going to disappoint. We're going to judge. We're going to be self-righteous. We're going to compare. We're going to belittle people. We're going to do all these things. We're going to be legalistic all the time. And God wants us to be reminded that Jesus is the only way, that we are saved by grace alone. And this resonates a bit further when Paul comes around a bit later and he writes this letter to the Romans and he says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. So as we hone in on John 6, we see that there is a misunderstanding. There are all these parts of the puzzle that are there, but they're not quite fitting in the way they should be. Now, right before John 6 is John 4, not immediately, but before is John 4, a story about a woman at the well. And maybe you're familiar with this story. Uh, The woman is a Samaritan woman who has a routine of going to the well. She draws water. She needs water. There's nothing wrong with that. And she meets Jesus, and Jesus says, I can give you 
water that will quench your thirst forever. And she's amazed. She's thinking, what kind of water is this? What kind of water can this man give? And she's like, give it to me. I want it. Little does she understand, even in that, that sounds good, and that's in many ways correct, but what Jesus is really offering, he's not, I'm going to give you something like from my pocket, or I have it back in my garage. I'm going to give you myself. I am that water that springs eternally unto eternal life. And we need to be reminded of that. So she has all these pieces in place, but she has a slightly mis, a slightly bad misunderstanding of who Jesus really is. And so we get to John 6. And in John 6, there's this comparison that Jesus makes between manna and himself. And the context of this was Jesus just fed 5,000 people, and they're still following him. They started following him before they were fed because they saw him heal the sick and perform many signs and miracles. So they look at him. Again, who is Jesus? Well, to most of these people, if not all of them, they were looking at Jesus and they were saying, he can do great things. And I'm here to tell you, if that's all you think about Jesus, you have not received the gospel. The good news isn't that Jesus can fix your life. The Jesus that the Bible presents isn't one who is here to give you what you don't have or what you think you need or desire. Jesus is here to give you eternal life. He's here to give you himself. And even on a really basic level, even if, we, if it's possible to step out the, the whole topic of religion, I think everyone would agree that those things that last longer are better than th- those things that don't. If I, if I offered you a battery, I said, this battery, actually, the only reason why the battery popped in my mind is because as I was driving here, my car told me that my fob battery is low. And I'm trying to sell you a battery, and I say, this will only last you one week. Now, if that's all you knew, you'd probably take it. But if you went to the store, you said, um, but I see another battery that says it'll last a year. It's better. It's a better battery. You want something that lasts longer. And Jesus only, at least on the surface, touches on that part of the argument. I'm better because I last longer. I'm eternal, whereas everything else perishes. And it's terminal. So Jesus presents this comparison between him and manna. And if you're familiar with manna, it's a reference to the Old Testament story of the Exodus where God was faithful to his people to free them from slavery in Egypt. He sends them on this journey through the wilderness called the Exodus. And just like I was on those road trips with my dad, they start to grumble and complain. And maybe you've done it. Maybe some of you who are younger, you do it all, or you do it as well. We've all done it. And parents, they go crazy when they hear it. Uh, let's say the journey is only about an hour long. It's inevitable that within the first minute, Someone's going to ask, are we there yet? And I did it all the time. Now with my dad, you can only make that mistake once. If you do it a second time, he will pull over and you will never forget the lashing. Um, I remember my dad, I don't know why this pops in my mind, my dad was a very serious man. He did not like people farting in the car. <laughs> he used to get very angry. Thank God he's in retirement now. 
we grumble about the silliest things. And if I think about, if I dissect that a bit deeper, for me, I am doubting my dad's word that we are going to arrive at our destination in an hour. Or I am dissatisfied that we have not arrived there in astronomical time. All the problems lie with me. He laid it out. We're going to be there in an hour. We're going to have a good time. I'm not saying we actually did, but that was the promise. And God said, you're going to get to the promised land. You just have to trust me. He never said how long it would take. He never even gave many details. He just said, just follow me. Now, you would think the God of creation, if it is true that he created the heavens and the earth, I think he's worth believing in if he says, just follow me. So we should follow him. But they didn't. They grumbled. And they said, you know what? Life was better back in Egypt where we had pots full of meat. Now, we're not even certain if that's true. But even if that's true, you're basically saying, God, we had life better back then than where you're sending us. So you're basically a liar. Because you told us we're going to a better place. But I'd rather be a slave with meat than to be free with you. And they grumbled. So God said, you know what? I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be merciful. And I'm going to send this thing called manna. They were like, what's that? And manna was given and it was promised to descend from heaven. And they were told that they were to collect a day's worth of manna that they could consume from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Now, on Friday, they were told to collect two portions worth, two days worth. Why? Because Saturday was their Sabbath, and it shifted over to Sunday, but Saturday being their Sabbath, they were not to work on the Sabbath. They were to collect two days worth. Now, if you actually think about it, whether, that, whether God gave us seven days worth or he gives us seven days all in once or seven days worth in seven portions, it's still the same thing. But the latter procedure allows us to trust in him, but we're still getting the same. We're getting only what we need and what we can consume. You know, maybe some of us are those people that go to buffet, we'd put so much on our plate and we eat like a portion. I, I couldn't stand my niece. We'd have Thanksgiving dinner. She put so much food on her plate, and it looked like she touched nothing, and she just throw it all away. You know, God's like, you don't need to do that. I'm just going to give you exactly what you need, but you are to determine that and collect it and consume it for the day, but it will be waiting for you again the next morning. Manna from heaven, pointing us and reminding us to the God who is good and faithful, a great provider, loving he is faithful to do it diligently, on time, as we need. That's God. He said, trust me. But they didn't trust. Now God here in Jesus, he tells us that Jesus is a better manna. And manna was something really good. I mean, it is monumental in the Jewish religion. To these people who are listening to Jesus, they're like, you're telling us you are really special. Minimally. And she's saying, well, that's just, there's more to it than that. But minimally, they're thinking, you're comparing yourself to man and you're saying you're better. In rabbinical literature, and rabbinical literature was writings that certain rabbis had um, scribed in the years after Jesus' life, in like the second, third, and fourth centuries. Rabbinical literature used to say that manna was so good 
that when they ate it in the desert, it tasted like whatever they wanted it to taste. Now, that's not in the book of Exodus. But imagine if that were true. What would manna taste like to you? As I shared with the first service, I don't want to lie. To me, it would taste like a ribeye steak. I'm sorry, I'm not a vegetarian. I am a carnivore. That's why I look this way. But it would not, definitely would not taste like cilantro. Now, someone comforted me after the first service saying that it's scientifically proven that 10% of the human race, I guess, they have this something uh, in their anatomy that where cilantro just tastes like soap. I'm not 10%. It just can't do it. Now, I do, I do like to cook, and so from time to time, I'll make pho for my wife, which is a Vietnamese noodle dish, but I can't eat it. I just make it for her because I love my wife so much. But... Um, what would manna taste like to you? Regardless of whether that's actually true, and I don't, I'm not saying that I actually believe it, is that they held manna to the highest esteem. And here's God coming along, and in Jesus saying, I am better. And really simply, he's saying because manna fed them for the day, it fed them for days, it fed them for weeks and months and years, and guess what? They died. They died. But I am the bread of life that feeds you forever. Now the other comparison is that that manna had to be given constantly. There was almost that greater susceptibility to doubt because they would have gone to bed thinking, if I wake up tomorrow, is it really going to be there? Whereas with Jesus, it's a one-time feeding. We don't lose it, or you have to come back next Sunday and get it again. Sure, there are reminders, there are feedings of his word, but it's not because we've lost it, digested it, or, and pardon for the crassness, defecated it out. But that we have Jesus once for all, forever. Again, that's a reminder that you and I need. Now for them, it's a little challenging for us to read into their situation and to really resonate with it. I mean, let's be frank. You and I are not people who walk through the desert. We are not people who cannot store food. As we were coming here, as I shared earlier, we purged a lot of stuff. I lived with people, and I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well, who live as if the apocalypse is nigh. And we go to Costco as if there is going to be the greatest earthquake or hurricane coming tomorrow. And our pantries were full. I mean, we gave our friend Sarah, a, had to be at least a dozen rolls of paper towels. And she went home with a year's worth of supplies from us. But that was our extra stuff. I mean, we didn't have to get the two rolls to go buy another at Costco. I think we went to half of that Costco brick to buy another. I mean, even my wife and I, we yesterday, uh, self, a little confession, we bought two cases of water for two people. I mean, that's 72 bottles of water. 
That would last a while. That was only what, seven dollars? It's amazing. So we don't really know what that's like. I mean, how many of us have have said, even particularly if you're younger, like, I'm dying. I am so hungry, so thirsty, mom, I'm gonna die. Right? We're not really dying. Now they could have died. They knew what it was like to starve. They knew what it was like to possibly go hungry to the point of death. So it's a little different. So as I was wrestling through this, I want to come up with ways in which God really can impact us and remind us with this truth that Jesus is this bread that provides every bit of nourishment that you and I need. Now, what Jesus doesn't want you to do is walk away with this passage like this. Oh, so God doesn't care about what I need or what sustains me today physically in my earthly existence. He just cares about my heart. That's not what this passage is saying. The passage is not trying to pit one against the other. It's one trying to tell you that the latter, the eternal provision, the spiritual provision is far greater, far greater, incomparable, far greater than the former. Because if you just depend on the former, it will end. And so many things that we think are important and of value and maybe immeasurably valuable today, they're not. And you know this from experience. As we were purging and packing to move over here, we had to really decide and it caused a lot of marital strife, what was important to keep and what you could throw out. I am, and I think I shared this before, I'm a hoarder. I collected my kids' teeth growing up. (laughs) I was the fairy. But I realized one day I'd made a grave mistake. I threw all their teeth in the same jar. So I didn't know whose was whose. I was like, this is worth it, I threw it out. So it didn't matter anymore, but you know, there was a time where I thought, oh, this is so important. I am God's gift to fatherhood, because I collect teeth. <laughs> and suddenly I was like, this is really dumb and creepy, and I threw it out. I saved my kids' worksheets from homeschooling for a year or two. I didn't even know whose was whose, because they didn't put their names on them. But at the time, they were so valuable. I saved all their artwork. I mean, I had a stack of art. Stack of art. And I looked at it, and I was like, wow, it really was that bad. And, I, and then someone said, you know what you can do, Joe? Just take a picture and throw it out. So I did that. So I haven't quite learned my lesson yet. But the things that were of so much value back then, they're not anymore, are they? Like that shirt you had to have. I'm a jacket guy. So I, that jacket I had to have. I remember we went to drop off my brother at college. My dad, insanely, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He said, I'll buy you some clothes. He never bought me clothes. Because I always wore my brothers. Now, you need to know my brother is about six inches taller than me. And at the time, he was about 50 pounds lighter as well. So nothing ever fit. But that's what I wore. But this one time he said, I'll buy you something. And I bought this jacket. I loved it. And I left it in the motel and I cried. It was so important. I look back and I'm, so, I feel, I'm embarrassed to share that story. Things that are so important. Now, if we even up that level to something that's a bit serious, 
Maybe you've seen this with someone who has passed. Maybe you anticipate in yourself. All the things that we have invested in, in our lives, uh, and again, it's not an either or, but all the effort and the time and the energy into work and studies and things that were like, I have to do this. That they were so important indispensable life would crumble without them. All of a sudden, you look back and you're like, all I need is love. Or something like that. How many people have amassed millions, accomplished so much, yet at the very end of their lives said, I would trade it all. So here Jesus is saying certainly that the bread of life is better in that regard. And again, from your own experiences, hopefully you see that. Now, and I, I want to keep reinforcing this, God is not pitting spiritual existence and benefits to earthly. God created your life. God gives you all that you enjoy. He is that good giver. He doesn't desire for you to make those your idols or your gods, but we can, no matter what age you are. So like, even if you're young today, you have aspirations of going to, a, maybe, maybe, maybe you're unlike I was. <laughs> aspirations of going to a good school, getting a good job, being rich and happy. I wasn't like that. I just wanted to get out of the house. But that was my aspiration. So regardless you have something that you see as of immense value. And what this patch is really simply at the surface level is that it's telling you that Jesus is greater. Without that, those things will come to an end. But Jesus is eternal and sustains and provides, nurtures and nourishes and strengthens, comforts and motivates forever. Only Jesus. Now, <clears throat> One of the challenges that I find as a preacher is that when you enter, to, enter into similar, this type of topic, you can sound insensitive. Because some of you may be struggling with your livelihood. Some of you may be struggling with your health. Or you have someone, a loved one, who is suffering from cancer. We left where a good friend of ours, his wife, found out she had breast cancer. There was one thing that possibly would have kept us from coming here, which was, and I, I might have shared this in the previous message, said uh, there was a possibility my dad had pancreatic cancer. He's been cleared, which I praise God for. But what would be my prayer if he was diagnosed with cancer? Certainly, and you should, because if God is the creator of life and the recreator of life, the sustainer, the resurrector of those who are dead, can he not heal? And he has. So I would certainly always pray, God, heal. I would have prayed that. But is that all I desire of God, that God would just be the fixer of my life? That God would just simply give me something to get me by? Because if he got me by pancreatic cancer, what lies ahead? Am I really naive or ignorant to think that I am immortal? Or 
impervious to anything, any challenge that this world can throw at me. There's just something else waiting. You know this. However old or young you may be today. So I don't mean to sound insensitive, forgive me, but some of you I realize may be enduring these kinds of challenges. And I do want you to know that in a small way here, but it is affirmed throughout Scripture that God is your Heavenly Father. That if Christ is your Savior, you are a brother of the Lord, you are a son, a daughter of God. And what kind of father is this God? Is this a God like I am, where sometimes if I'm in the mood, I'll care for my children, or sometimes if I'm not, just, hey, Take the phone, go. Get out of my sight. Do your own thing. I don't care. Out of sight, out of mind. No. Is he a God who gets tired and exhausted, incapable, not desiring? Or even in his greatest moments, like some of us have, we just simply muster up the ability to do it even though we don't want to. Or is scripture actually telling us that there is one father out there, only the heavenly father, who is able not only to do it, but to do it perfectly, wisely, and with love consistently. That's God. That Jesus earlier, affirmed in Matthew 6, says that doesn't God care more for you than he does for the birds of the air? They don't worry. Doesn't God adorn you more beautifully, more gloriously than he would the grass and the lilies of the field? This is your heavenly father. Sure, there are stories in the Bible that this loving God that I just described may do things that cause us to kind of pause and to wonder, really? Like with Job, where he allowed Job to suffer, I mean, immensely, in every possible way, the only thing Job did not endure was death. His kids died, his wife abandoned him, his body was stricken, everything, his wealth taken from him, you name it, he had to suffer it. And God, it almost seems like, and critics of Christianity would say, it seems like God is playing games. God allowed this to prove that faith endures, that Job would remain faithful, and he did. Now, when Job finally gets his opportunity to talk with God, he would have, or he did, as I would have, asked God why. And God didn't give the reasons that Job was looking for. He didn't give the responses that you and I normally would give if we were posed with those questions. Like, this is why I did it, dot, 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 one, two, three, for this reason, that. God says, because I'm God. Now, that may frustrate all of you. But there are two points I'd like to present as to what lies behind that frustration. One, there's this presumption that if God were to give me a reason why he's doing what he's doing, and I get it, this doesn't, may not completely comfort you, but if, there's a, if God were to actually give me all the reasons, the extent, every little detail, am I presumptuous to think that I can actually comprehend it? My oldest graduated from the Naval Academy. He is now in what's called Nuclear Power School in Charleston, South Carolina. And I made the mistake of asking him what he's learning. That conversation ended 
after 10 seconds, he lost me at one. I said, I get it. I trust you. <laughs> you know, I just don't have the ability. I'm a finite being. I am a creature and not the creator. I can read every possible book about femininity. I took a class in college called The Psychology of Women. I guarantee you that I would not be alive if I told you I know exactly what it's like to be a woman today. None of you, or many of you, would not let me leave the room. There's that. And second, there is this, at least for me, there's this arrogance that if God, why are you allowing me to endure this? That if God were to actually present it, I am in that position to judge whether he has made the right decision. God, I'll listen. I think you made the wrong choice. And God's just going to give the best possible answer there is. I'm God. One, I have the right, I have the ability, but I do it out of love. It's the only response out there that's possible. And so I commend to those who are suffering today the God who loves you in Christ, who has promised never to leave you nor forsake you, who promises never to tempt you or to cause you to sin, who desires to be with you, who never leaves your side, so much so that he has placed his own spirit within your heart forever and ever, and desires that one day which will come, he will be with you in paradise forever. That is what's gonna comfort me. And it may take some time that I remember challenging times and maybe this is child's play compared to what some of you are enduring. But my wife and I, just years back when I left a certain job, and we were enduring five part-time jobs to get by. And it was tough. I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I was napping just to get through the day. Because I had an overnight shift I had to tend to as well. And there were days, and I don't know if I shared this with my wife, I lay there in my bedroom I said, God, you either have to take my life or you got to give me a full-time job. He didn't do either. <laughs> but here I am, and I, I praise God more today than I did then. But he was faithful regardless. He didn't give in. Just like I would if my kid was crying. All right, just shut up. You know, that's what we would do, right? But God doesn't because he knows he's right, and he does it in a loving, perfect fashion. So Jesus says, I'm the better manna. Jesus says, it's all about me. I am the living bread that I offer to you. And again, it's not a bread that he simply pulls out of his pocket. He says, here, take it. He says, I give you me. I give you myself. And wonderfully, we see that. In the Old Testament, there are these types and figures of what, this person is going to accomplish. It's one that they had anticipated, the Messiah to come. But one thing they didn't realize was not what he was going to do, but that he was going to actually give himself. That Jesus 
we often say in theology, we say Jesus is the great high priest. Well, what priests did in the Old Testament was they presented sacrifices. And Jesus says that. He presents the perfect sacrifice, but he is also, as you can guess, he is the sacrifice. He presents himself. And here, they're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? He wants us to eat his body and, and drink his blood. It didn't make any sense. And some of them are thinking over theologizing it. And some of them are thinking literally, he, does he want us to be cannibals? And, and there's nothing like, you know, nothing like that espoused in the Bible. So what do we do? Well, what Jesus says is the eating and the drinking is basically believing in him. Again, as John said in chapter 20, that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in me, you will have eternal life in my name. And so the great call for us today, whoever you may be, and I'll start with those who may not be believers. Maybe you were like me who was dragged to church. My parents were very devout. They dragged us to church twice on Sundays, once on Wednesdays, and who knows, countless Bible studies throughout the week. My parents made us wear three-piece suits from the moment we walked in that hot, humid East Coast summer. We would still wear three-piece suits. I didn't, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be there. So maybe that's you. But I invite you to compare. The things that you have placed your life, the value of your life, your hopes, your dreams, everything in, Will they pan out in the end? Or will you, like those in the desert, along with the things that you have placed so much hope in, to simply fade and die? The other challenge for us, and I want to close soon, is we have so much stuff. If you're someone like me, and I'll even say, I don't have to compare to anybody, I've got a lot of stuff. We opened a box of shoes. I used to make fun of my mother-in-law for having tons of shoes. I think I have like five pairs of flip-flops. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't ask for much, but I, I like my flip-flops and I like my jackets. But I've got a lot of stuff too. And sometimes what happens in the modern world is we, even whether it's intentional or not, we God-proof our lives to the point where even if there's a tragedy or a calamity, we don't feel it. There's no spiritual challenge. And what lies in that heart is actually not a contentment in God and what he has provided. It's that, God, I have taken the things that you have provided so you can't do anything to me. And little do we know, we've actually placed our hope not in him, but in the things he's given Again, I'm not pitting the blessings from the one who blessed, but to be reminded that those things should point to the one who's the great giver. So even if you are very successful, affluent, doesn't matter. Whether you have a big home, small home, you have a pantry full of canned foods, like, okay, no one eats canned food, but um, whatever it may be, you have tons of stuff that can keep you going forever. Remember the one who truly is eternal. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing in him, 
the one who sustains, he is the living bread, the bread of life. Not only who leads us and gives us eternal life, but today we are blessed by that today in this world. As we work, as we labor, as we relate, as we interact, as we enjoy the, the world and the creation that God gives us, we are reminded of the one who saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you have blessed us with. We're grateful for the great gift that is eternal, your son, Jesus Christ. God, forgive us. Help us to see if our hearts truly have swayed and have depended on the gifts that you have blessed us with rather than you. God, we thank you that Jesus gives us something eternal. We thank you that he gives himself. Um, Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead us by your word to remind us of who he is. He's not just someone who's a fixer-upper, someone who just provides a vending machine of sorts, but he is the son of God who gives us eternal life. May you change our hearts, continue to mold us, change our hearts to have deeper faith. We praise you for these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.